Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices that we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips for Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. There's a great scene in the movie Fried Green Tomatoes when Evelyn Couch, played by Kathy Bates, glares at the car that just stole her parking space. And as they pulled in, the girls had gloated at her, face it, lady, we're younger and faster. And Evelyn responds as she slams her car into theirs. Face it, girls, I'm older and I have more insurance. That's the thing about insurance. It allows you the ability to take some risks. That's something that we know in the business world, but did you know that there's something out there in the tax world called tax insurance? Tax insurance provides protection for taxpayers in the event that a transaction fails to qualify for its intended tax treatment. Tax insurance can cover additional taxes, interest, penalties, contest costs, and gross-ups that arise when a taxpayer's intended tax treatment fails to be respected by a tax authority. Even though tax insurance has been around for a while, many taxpayers don't know much about it. So today, I've invited a guest on the show that has significant experience with tax insurance to talk about the benefits and what to be wary of. Justin Beretich is SVP Head of Tax at Euclid Transactional, a former M&A and transactional tax attorney. He enhances client value through the promotion and underwriting of tax indemnity insurance solutions. Justin's corporate tax and insurance experience allows him to bring a unique perspective to each matter. He understands business and his goal is to achieve success for Euclid's clients by implementing highly customized insurance solutions in the most expeditious and cost-effective manner possible. Prior to joining the insurance world, Justin, a licensed attorney in three states and the District of Columbia, facilitated efficient and timely negotiations, structuring, due diligence, and closing of deals for Fortune 500 companies and high-growth businesses, providing business-centric advice to help his clients achieve objectives, stay competitive, manage risk, and avoid costly disputes. And I think risk is sort of going to be the key today. So thank you, first of all, Justin, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Kelly. And I would uh, love for you to kind of start out by talking generally about what tax insurance is. I think people might have a, a kind of a clue, but maybe don't understand how it functions and kind of who the, the key demographic would be. So can you kind of just give us a quick overview of what tax insurance is? Sure. I mean, you gave a great introduction that it, you know, we're ensuring that the tax position taken is going to qualify for its intended tax treatment. But in the simplest sense, it's coverage for an identified supportable tax position. And that's pretty important because the taxpayer needs to understand what the tax risk is, and it needs to be something that's supportable. And I can go into what supportable means from a tax insurance sense, Mm -hmm. but for the tax practitioners out there, it's generally better than more likely than not. Like We're not here to ensure tax avoidance transactions. That's not what this product is. You didn't pay your taxes and now you have a notice from the IRS. Like That's not what we're here for. You took a position that is supportable and the IRS is questioning it. That's something that we can take that risk off your plate for. And I think maybe a lot of uh, listeners who don't engage in 
transactions that are different might not understand what a tax position is. So can you kind of explain like what would be an example of a tax position? Because I think a lot of people think of it in terms of, you know, I fill out my 1040, I don't understand what a position might be. So what would be an example of a transaction where there's a position that's been taken? Sure. So, you know, things we see often, um, is an S-corp a valid S-corp? You know, did they have ineligible shareholders? Was there a second class of stock? Has anybody made any disproportionate distributions? Whether a financial instrument should be classified as debt or equity, is that income ordinary or capital? Have there been any impacts with respect to 382 on NOLs that uh, an entity may have? I think the the debt instrument's kind of interesting because this is something that we've seen more of recently. And I think a lot of it (laughs) has to do with uh, people scrambling with respect to capital. But Debt instruments, again, for, for folks who might not be um, familiar, when you, when you capitalize a company, you can either loan them money or you can put capital into the company. And um, so sometimes there's a dispute over, did you put your own money in with the expectation that you would be repaid like it was a loan, or did you put your money in to build the company? So what would be an example of why that would matter from, a, yeah. like, from an insurance perspective? I mean, there's drastic, well, I mean, from an insurance perspective, we just need to line up what the intended tax treatment is with the facts and circumstances of the matter. Mm-hmm. From an insured position, it's, am I getting interest deductions or am I not getting interest deductions? If it's equity, am I going to be entitled to capital gain? Mm-hmm. And so what makes it difficult for taxpayers on these issues sometimes is they're very fact specific. and Differing people can have differing viewpoints about how those facts are going to apply. And especially like the jurisprudence on debt versus equity specifically, not all courts come down the same way or not all courts look at the exact same factors. And so a taxpayer who wants certainty saying, I'm treating this as debt or I'm treating this as equity, but I need certainty either because you know, I need to continue growing my business and having this type of risk hanging over me is too significant for me to do that. Or I'm providing an indemnity to somebody else about this and I don't want to have that indemnity on my books. And so you can de-risk yourself by using the insurance. And what we do is we go down the facts and circumstances analysis. And I say, you know, it looks like it's debt, which is exactly how you intended to treat it. You know, let me take that risk off your books for you. And so I guess that the decision to pursue the insurance is much like you would do with any other kind of insurance. Like it's, it's a financial transaction, right? So how much is, is this going to cost me to buy the insurance? How much is this going to cost me if I don't buy the insurance? And kind of where does that number fall? Is that kind of the analysis that you do with your taxpayers? Correct. Yeah. So similar to most other insurance, the end insured goes through an insurance broker. The insurance broker presents the opportunity to the people like myself who underwrite these risks. Mm-hmm. Those opportunities, like the responses are then shared with the end taxpayer and they select a market to work with. Similar you would do with auto. You know, you go to your broker, they say, you know, company A is offering this rate and this coverage, company B is offering this rate and this coverage. And so when you're doing auto insurance, they of course look at your your history to see, you know, have you been in accidents, have you had tickets? And when you're doing like life insurance, you agree to, you know, all the blood tests and they look at your history. 
what kinds of things might, and I understand it's taxpayer specific, but what kinds of things might an insurance company want to see before they give you a, a quote on a transaction? When this product first started, it was generally, we want to see an opinion from counsel. Okay. That's since moved a little bit. And so now we just need to see advice from counsel. And that can be a memo. That can be a well-detailed email. And then the supporting documents behind it. And it's a little difficult to tell you which ones we exactly need. But you know, the relevant documents associated with the position, like if it was the debt equity issue, we're going to want to see the instrument. Okay. And we're also going to see who the taxpayer is, you know, what their history is, what their audit history is, and sort of get an understanding of the full picture. Once we have an understanding of the full picture, we feel like we're able to fairly price that risk. And and that price is generally 2 to 5% of the amount of insurance that you're purchasing. Gotcha. So if, if the person, so in this example, that we'll go with the financial instruments since we've been talking about that. So is the insurance for a specific period of time or is it long-term? Like the, the debt equity is a good example because it depends on when that money comes out and whether or not you sell the company before that happens. Like there's a lot of things that could happen that would impact how that was classified. Um, so what is kind of the timing of the insurance? Again, so for auto, you do it every year, right? Um, but this feels more transaction specific. So is it geared towards a specific transaction, meaning you're selling the company, was this debt or not? Or is it you organized the company and capitalized it, was this debt or not? Like how, how does that work in terms of timing? Is it an ongoing insurance um, obligation or is it very specific? Sure. Without getting into too much insurance ease, um, it's a claims made policy. So as long as the claim is made within the policy period, then coverage is provided. Policy periods are generally seven years, which the market has said six-year statute of limitations on a tax issue plus mm-hmm. your year of filing. So yeah. you should have the full audit period covered. Certain issues like debt or equity where you may be taking you know, certain deductions over time, we can go out to 10 years. And so you get the six-year statute of limitation on the you know a return that may have be filed three years from inception, right? And so let's say um, that things don't go well for the taxpayer and they do need to make a claim. How do they do that? And then how does the insurance work? And I kind of mentioned in the intro, generally speaking, it's not just the tax; it's also penalties and stuff. But how how does that work in terms of sharing information, making a claim? Sure. So. We view ourselves as partners with the taxpayer. We take a risk that the taxpayer believes in and that we believe in, and we're all fighting for the same treatment. And so when an audit notice comes in, you know, depending on how the policy is worded, but generally it's, you know, you're being audited on this specific issue, mm-hmm. you alert the tax underwriter, right. and now we jump on board with you. And we're not going to control how you, um, you know, have interactions with the service. But we're going to participate. We're going to give you our input. We're going to give you our outside advisor's input to go along with you know, the taxpayer and their advisor's input. And then we'll stand by you all the way through an adverse resolution. And whether that's you know, a, a final determination of a court of appeals or a settlement with the insured's consent. And if it turns out that the position is not supportable, 
that's when we're cutting you all a check so that you can pay the service. And so this is where my my tax attorney brain uh, is, of course, uh, uh, on high alert. So let's say um, that the taxpayer hires an attorney who takes uh, a, a position with the service um, that's consistent with the insurance, but you guys don't feel that it's a strong enough position. And, you know, as, a, as an attorney, you're always going to have those moments where you're looking at how someone else handles something and there's the how would I have done it differently. Mm-hmm. But, but if you're watching this and and you feel like there are pieces that are missing or that there's something that you would do differently, you mentioned that you partner, do you step in or do you offer additional counsel? Like how, how would that work? It's going to be policy specific, but most times the, insure, the, the taxpayer is driving the boat. So if them and their advisors say, we're taking path A instead of path B. You know, both of them are in support of the tax position, but taxpayer thinks A is better. Mm-hmm. We're not going to require them to take path B. Gotcha. We don't, we try to not disrupt the business aspect. You know, they may be taking path A because it's a good position, but, you know, B is just as good, but B may implicate some other impact in, in part of their business. And they may say, I don't, I would prefer not to go down path B because it may, you know, screw up something we have planned in the future. Right. But you don't ever, I mean, I guess, you know, me being me, and of course you're a tax attorney as well. There are times when you do look at the way something is being handled and you, you know, you have that gasp. You're like, no, <laughs> this is, this is not good. You don't step in, even if you feel like, like, let's say they've hired you know, a, a divorce attorney for well, a tax transaction. Yeah. Do, is there a moment where you're like, no, this so can't. that can't happen. There's a, there's okay. a whole lot of, I mean, as you can imagine, like our policies are very detailed. They're sure. bespoke policies written for each individual instance. So if you gave us the advice of big four mm-hmm. on your tax position, when we underwrote it, right. we'll probably consent to you using big four. Or if you were using Kelly, you know, and we got your tax advice, We'll consent to the continued use of Kelly to right. you know chal- to fight this challenge. If you want to use somebody else, you're going to need our consent. If you're going with you gotcha. know divorce attorney, we're going to say sure. no. Okay, yeah, no, that's I was that was one of the kind of the pieces that I was wondering about as a tax attorney. So if if it if it goes south, the uh, service issues uh, a notice, and then there are additional costs. Is that something that so the policy is going to going to pay all of that? Is that how that works generally? Again, yeah. I understand it's policy specific, but and so there's there's a, a there is a retention, a deductible, similar to our health insurance, our auto policies. Sure. But once the retention is eroded, then our policy starts paying first dollar. Generally, those retentions are somewhere between two hundred and fifty, you know, thousand dollars. Oftentimes, they're applicable only to contest costs, and what that means is. Service challenges the tax position, the insured's going to pay the first $250,000 of contest costs. But if they never spend that much before there's an adverse resolution, our policy pays first dollar of tax. Gotcha. And so clearly this isn't something that like ordinary taxpayer uses because they've made a small charitable contribution and they weren't really sure if it was going to qualify. But what are the kinds of transactions and maybe some of the dollar amounts involved? Like, obviously, 
we've talked about the the debt tr- uh, instruments. Um, I assume like reorgs and structure uh, restructuring are, are big in the corporate world. Are there any kinds of transactions that are specific to individual taxpayers that you guys deal with? And then then tell me about corporate. Sure. So just to sort of like set the stage, the minimum limit that people are generally buying just for efficiency purposes is around $5 million. So $5 million in loss, which is tax, interest, penalties, the gross up and contest costs. Right. So individual issues that we see often, estate planning. Mm -hmm. Do you guys touch FBARs? Is that something FATCA matters, like foreign assets? So I won't say no. Uh Uh-huh. They don't often make their way to our, you know, desk, right? Just because either they're not large enough, mm-hmm. the individual doesn't know about our product, or they're not as concerned with it to spend the money on it. Gotcha. But you know, when we say individual issues, we're also talking about individual business owners. A lot of business owners, especially in S corps or LLCs, all those tax consequences are flowing through to them. Mm-hmm. And so we oftentimes are insuring, you know, the shareholders, the equity holders of, you know, small business. Gotcha. And so are, when you write, so the, of course now my, my mind is worrying, but um, when you write those policies for like an S-Corp, do you typically write them for the company or for the individual shareholders? Or is there, because, you know, in law, you're always thinking about who's the, who's the client, right? Mm-hmm. So in, a, in, a sh- in an S-Corporation situation, would you be... I assume it works both ways, but is it more typical for the for the insurance to be purchased on behalf of the S or the or the individual shareholders? We try to make it super easy. Um, the quote unquote named insured under the policy, who is the client per se, mm-hmm. could be the company, and then the additional insureds will be the shareholders. So when they're insuring a tax risk, we make sure we try to cover the universe of the people who need the coverage. Gotcha. And when I kind of opened with my fried grain tomatoes example, but, um, you know, obviously people don't ramming your car into another car is a different kind of risk. But do you find that the insurance encourages people to be like more entrepreneurial, like to take risks that they might not ordinarily take? Or is it more of a defensive position? So I'm just kind of curious as to like the kinds of folks that that buy this insurance, are they doing it because they're more worried about the way that the IRS is going to view something that is traditional? Or is it because they're doing something a little outside of the box? We see both. And not that it's they're taking more risk because it's outside of the box. I mean, as you know, oftentimes when we're tax planning, there's just not significant enough jurisprudence or the regs and the code don't provide you know the clearest of picture on this scenario because everything is so fact-specific. And so, you know, they may say, hey, I'm, I'm an SPAC and the regs don't apply. You know, the regs don't delineate how I should be treated. I think I should be treated like everyone else. Can I still take this tax position and get the intended treatment? Gotcha. And so when, when you're making the decision to, to ask around, so obviously your company offers this, this product, but, um, or these services, but how do you know, you, you mentioned earlier that people might not be using it because they don't know it exists. How do you know where to find people who offer tax insurance? And what are some of the things that you should look for in terms of 
both these are positives and then these might be red flags on coverage. Because obviously, if you're going to put money up on top of a potential transaction, you want to make sure that you're you're covered. So what are the kinds of things that taxpayers should look for? So how do they find someone? And then how do they evaluate whether or not a policy makes sense or is, is, you know, advantageous? Sure. So lean on your tax advisors and lean on your insurance brokers to find, you know, the coverage. Mm -hmm. And those people will also advise you on whether they think the coverage being offered is sufficient to meet your needs. Okay. And once you know you receive all the terms from the various markets who may wish to underwrite your risk, mm-hmm. then we go into underwriting, and that's when we're going to you know get more into detail about your specific risk than what you provided at the initial stage, and we're going to work with you to craft the policy so that it's covering what you think, like what we all agree we're covering. Okay. And there's no real cost to the taxpayer until they buy the coverage. So you can take us all the way down the aisle. And then if you get cold feet and you don't like the coverage being offered, you don't have to buy it. Do you guys, when this process is going on, ever offer tax advice in the sense that, you know, you're looking at a policy and you're looking at a situation and you say, you know what, this position would be better if you did X. Do you have those kinds of conversations? On a high level, like I said, we try not to interrupt the business relationship. Sure. Between. I mean, nobody wants their insurance broker yeah. micromanaging. Like I get yeah. that, but do you ever look at it and say, you know what, this would be, we we would we would be so much more comfortable if we saw th- this this thing happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, so we do have those conversations. Often it's advisor to advisor, so it would be myself, you know, with the taxpayer's advisor, whether that's you know in-house tax professionals or you know their outside tax attorney. And I'm like, you know, if we did X, Y, and Z, you know, I don't think that's going to interrupt how you're planning to do this. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be a better position. And and oftentimes they'll consider it and sometimes they'll agree to do it. Does the service know when they're examining a position if there's insurance? At one point in time the service wanted all transactions that were insured with tax insurance to be reportable. Okay. And some of the people who were in the industry before me, because this was like a decade plus ago, mm-hmm. commented on those prop regs and was like, listen, that's not we're not tax shelter insurance. We're just a regular mitigation tool that companies use all the time, that taxpayers use all the time. Mm-hmm. So requiring it to be reportable would be unfair. The service agreed. And they're like, we're going to monitor how the insurance is being used to make sure that it's not shelter insurance. Sure. And so we're not reportable. Like, If you insure a, a tax position, you don't have to report it unless the transaction you're taking is reportable and we're probably not insuring those anyway. Mm-hmm. Then you're under audit. If the service asks, and they have started to, is your transaction covered by insurance? You know, You'll have to respond truthfully. Like we're not here to prevent you from saying, yes, I have insurance on this transaction. We just the nature of the relationship, we'd prefer that it remain confidential. Mm-hmm. But you're not prohibited from from obviously telling the service. Are these transactions typically so we we're talking about big dollars because we're talking about the feds. 
but do you guys also insure on the state and local side? We do. Um, so all salt issues that raise to the you know lower end of the limits, generally we'll see like, hey, is, is my SAS subject to sales tax in these various states? Just because that's sort of an unsettled issue. But we also do, we do international. So is this tax treaty applicable to us? Mm-hmm. We see a lot of, do I have a permanent establishment in the US? And so we pretty much cover the gamut of tax issues, both US and, and international. So I'm fascinated now by the sales tax matter because I've actually spoken to a few people. Um, I have a, a, an episode coming up with Avalara on this very issue. Um, are you guys seeing an uptick in sales tax transactions because of Wayfair and, and stuff that's, that's kind of flowed from that with some of these states taking really aggressive positions like California being a great example? We are. Um, they're very difficult to ensure, actually, though, because oftentimes what's prompting the insurance is someone's going to self-report to these states and say, mm-hmm. we probably should have been collecting. Right. That's not really what we're here for. If you say to us, I shouldn't have to pay in states A, B, and C, and here's my advice why, we can insure that transaction. Right. And we have seen an uptick because obviously Wayfair and now with the, the pandemic and the reduction <laughs> in collectibles that mm-hmm. these states are having, there's going to be a salt pickup. Like the states are probably going to have to be very aggressive to fill their budget holes. Oh, I expect that they will be. Yeah. So, in other kind of evolving areas of the law, are you seeing interest in cryptocurrency transactions or? Haven't seen anything on crypto. Probably what's going to be difficult for there is it might not raise to the level, like the, the dollar amount threshold. I think most of the crypto issues are individual based and probably lower dollar value mm-hmm. to date. As feel free to jump in whenever, as I think it becomes more acceptable and more institutions start utilizing them. Right. And I think I saw something come out yesterday that New York State is going to dabble in, in, in something with crypto. PayPal as well. PayPal yeah. Is, yeah. And so, yes, now we're starting to see some of the larger players. And that's uh, generally the larger players get comfortable with an issue and start taking positions. Those can be insured. And then that'll start trickling down to to some of the smaller uh, individual taxpayers. I know there's been a couple of Twitter conversations about how there are, and and these, I, I don't know the dollars involved, but people taking positions that they still believe that the IRS has misclassified crypto. And they believe that it should be treated differently. So I was just wondering if if you were seeing those because that's that would be a pretty high risk transaction. I was because it's to some degree settled, even though a lot of folks feel that it's settled incorrectly. So that's yeah. what I was wondering on that. The settled incorrectly is probably not the space for tax insurance. Gotcha. We're generally hanging our hat on should level advice or better. And my understanding is most advisors are probably not going to get to a should level type advice on on these crypto classification issues. Right. Is there anything else like looking down the road that you see that maybe you guys aren't insuring now, but you hear whispers about or you find intriguing that you think might be insurable? 
It's always difficult to say. I mean, I originally thought that PPP might be a potential oh. insurable uh-huh. transaction for us. But then when I dug in deeper, a lot of people were rely like wanted insurance for the need certification that was associated with, with taking out these loans, which was mm-hmm. basically a for people who may not be familiar, a certification by the taxpayer that says, I need these funds. And then there was some questions about whether or not like a a port co of a PE firm actually needed them. And I wasn't able to get comfortable with that. Right. I was just talking to Tony Nitty about this yesterday, about so many companies being not yet applying for forgiveness because there are so, so many outstanding questions. So I hadn't thought about PPP in the insurance space, but it is interesting, but I could see why it would also be, uh, it would be, you know, daunting. <laughs> yeah. And then like, I think depending on what happens in November, if the corporate rate goes back up, my guess is guilty and, and FDII are here to stay. And so now we have a higher corporate tax rate potentially and guilty and FDII all interplaying with each other, plus whatever new tax regulations and code may be placed on top of that. And just all that complexity and all that uncertainty is generally where we're able to thrive because companies don't do well in uncertainty. And I mean, if you open up the journal, it's always, they need more certainty because they need to be able to plan for the next decade and a half. And so when they need to take tax positions and there's just uncertainty because tax laws are changing um, and they need to know how that's going to be applied to their current situation, um, that's generally when we can come in and really help. And I know that there are probably some um, confidentiality issues that would prohibit you from talking about really specific transactions. But do you have an example of where having coverage made a difference to a taxpayer in a way that is translatable? Like, is there like a moment where you could say that, you know, you saw someone be able to hold a deal together in an M&A or, or something because of the insurance? Or we've can held you a, talk yeah. about that? I know it's tough because of uh, the, the privacy yeah. rules. But in generalities, we've held a lot of M&A deals together. Oftentimes, the, the sellers have taken a tax position and truly believe in it and got all the advice they needed. Mm-hmm. But the exposure is significant. So even if it's a 1% chance of being incorrect, but the exposure is larger than the deal value, potentially, right. the buyer's like, I'm not taking a 1% risk. And sellers like, well, I'm not going to put my money in escrow for seven years. So we step in in those instances all the time and make sure deals get done. And I, I would also, assume the same thing would work for business divorces, right? So totally. a breakup would be, yeah. Yeah. And we had a public client recently that did a reorg or an internal reorg, got audited, truly believed in the tax position. Their advisors believed in the tax position. The tax authority was taking an aggressive position in my eyes that I didn't think was sustainable. And the public company just didn't have the appetite to deal with if we are actually assessed what it's going to do to our stock price, what it's going to do to our board members on a on a DNO issue. And so they more or less purchased the insurance as downside protection of their stock price and said we believe in the issue, but we're willing to pay so that if we are assessed, we can alert our tax, our, our shareholders that despite the fact we've been assessed, we have adequate insurance coverage in place to cover any risk. Right. And so we stepped in there. And then three months later, 
you know, the, they got a, a, a no change letter. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. I, so it like, worked I, out for everybody. Exactly. Well, I would assume that this, you know, what, what you're kind of touching on with respect to making sure that, that the company remains healthy in terms of capital is probably a driving force behind a lot of these. It's not just preventative, but it's, you know, looking down the road, can we still stay in business if something bad happens? Correct. So, yeah. Stay yeah. in business, build a factory, hire more people. Like the things, taxes are inefficient just in their nature. Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so they, they change the way people would act normally. And so someone running a business is maybe not going to hire the next Steve Jobs or, you know, build the next factory that's going to produce, you know, the next electric car because they are worried about a tax implication. Right. And so we can step in, take that risk off their books and allow them to run their business how they would in an efficient manner. That's pretty cool. It's funny because again, this is one of the things tax insurance has been, I don't know how long it's been around, but I know they've been talking about it for well over a decade. But I've heard a lot more lately, and I'm assuming it's because of this uncertainty in the economy and trying to, you know, provide companies and taxpayers with a little, a little more certainty moving forward. So do you expect the industry to keep going? Is this something that you think we're going to see more of? I mean, no matter what happens in November, do you think that this is something that we're going to see more of and kind of a, 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 a similar vain question. Do you think if the um, the pandemic continues that more taxpayers will be looking to insurance for certainty? Um, so on the first part of the question, the industry's here to stay. It has been here for more than a decade. I mean, we're on a lot of transactions behind the scenes that, that people don't realize. Um, most solar projects, most green energy projects, wind, you know, potentially carbon capture going forward all have what's called tax equity. And so there's there's a company that is generating the, the project and then they're bringing in tax equity who's going to take advantage of the, the tax credits that are associated with those projects. Tax equity is exceptionally skittish on risk. Sponsors need certainty to be able to continue to grow their business. And so there's pretty much tax insurance on every green energy tax credit deal. And so yeah, like that no one really talks about. Um, but we're a driving force behind green energy. When I started underwriting this in 2016, there were about four of us who did it. There in the States, there are probably 20 of us now. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it went in the brokerage space, it went from one major brokerage to four major brokerages, plus, you know, a bunch of others who have the capacity when the opportunity arises. Mm -hmm. And so the, Brokers are making investments in the space. The insurance companies and underwriting companies like ours are making investments in the space. We're more or less all former tax practitioners. Mm -hmm. And we can get in the weeds and be nerdy about tax with the <laughs> right? tax advisors who are advising their clients. Uh -huh. And you're, you know, you're talking to the same type of people about what you would talk about, you know, in your office or on the telephone with, you know, opposing advisors and, and things of that nature. And so, yeah, I, I think, especially as it becomes more and more known, it's mm -hmm. going to become more and more prevalent. And I think we're going to be on most, if not, you know, a, a majority of tax positions that people are taking, because there's no reason not to de-risk given the cost. Right. 
And do you think that the the pandemic is is pushing any of that growth or do you think it's just it's a non-factor? No, I mean, again, the the pandemic has been causing a lot of uncertainty even with just finances. Like I I don't know if you know, I'm like what's my AR and AP going to look like in the next 3 months? What happens if a tax bill arises? Right. So, you know, that uncertainty in and of itself is a reason to de-risk. Gotcha. Looking forward, kind of, uh, you know, where do you see the the industry going next? And I know we kind of talked about some of the general ideas of, you know, you're doing international, you're doing uh, state and local, but do you think, or do you see this ever evolving into the kind of thing that would affect more everyday taxpayers? And I guess kind of where I'm going with that is there was a time when we thought of even like life insurance as being something for rich people, right? Mm -hmm. Like you normally you wouldn't, if you're middle class, you wouldn't run out and buy a policy. You had one if maybe your company gave you. But over time, it evolved into something that people still value in even at the lower dollar amounts. Is this something that you see kind of for maybe happening down the road if it becomes more mainstream? Or do you anticipate that for a long while it'll stay kind of at the corporate level or, or high dollar tax transactions? Probably for the foreseeable future, it's going to stay at, at the higher you know, the dollar value. But I, once a, an efficiency of scale can be built, mm-hmm. we'll start to be able to get lower. Like once we have more staff and more capacity and you know, we're, we're able to then look at some of those lower values without you know, losing in a, you know, losing out on the next deal that may have been a a more significant one. Right. But again, it's going to have to be identified and supportable. And a lot of hourly earners like myself, like I don't take a whole lot of tax positions. I, (laughs) my taxes are withheld. I file a return at the end of the year, you know, and hopefully I don't know. But yeah, I mean, I think some of the smaller businesses though, there are, there are moments when you're, you know, even, employee classification, expense classification, like those might not be $5 million deals, but they might be, you know, $500,000 deals. Yeah. So, so that's sort of where I was thinking. There are, like, I sort of say the floor is 5 million. I'm sort of a dinosaur in the space just because I've been underwriting it longer than most. Mm-hmm. That level seems to be dropping at other okay. markets who are newer to the space. And so I know people have written three million dollar policies and and potentially you know one and a half million dollar policies. Okay. So yeah, my guess would be that'll come down. Whether how low it gets and how fast it gets there, it's hard to predict. Oh sure, yeah. If the space keeps growing at the rate it's growing, probably not as long as I anticipate. Okay. So if folks wanted to find you on either the web or social, where would they go? You can get me by email. J Baratich, B-E-R-U-T-I-C-H at EuclidTransactional.com. I'm also on LinkedIn and you can visit our website, EuclidTransactional.com. And I'll have that information for our listeners in the show notes as well. Um, and you'll, you'll see those on Apple and, and other places where you listen. Thank you so much, uh, Justin, for being here and chatting about something that I know our Um, listeners don't hear a lot about. I think this is really fascinating space and something that we really, uh, again, that that folks maybe aren't familiar with. And I think it would be really valuable for a lot of the practitioners listening as well to, to consider. So thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. 
My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be.